Me The Money, the podcast that looks at the business side of movies and TV. With Jess Robinson, that's me, and Stephen Follows, that's him. <laughs> Hello, how are you, Jess? <laughs> yeah, I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I was considering uh, putting together an Edinburgh show at the last minute, but based on our last uh, week's episode, when I learned just how expensive and stressful it is, I decided not to. Do you know um, what? I have not been able to stop thinking about that. <laughs> I have not. It's like I've finally realised. And and my two friends were going to come up and spend um, four days there, and they've realised that with accommodation <laughs> and their train tickets and stuff, it would cost them nine hundred pounds, and they just said, "Yes, we sorry, but we'd rather go abroad." I we mean, don't. We, we're your friends, but we have. We, we've now put a financial limit on how much we like you. Yeah, but I wow. understand it. I mean, geez. It is so, amazing. My my um my little sister texted me and said, "Thank you for um answering the question." And does she have to pay for your therapy now? Yes, she does. <laughs> <laughs> or just buy all the tickets to the show, please. I'm not um, sure what will be cheaper. Yeah. Yeah, that's creeping up now. Ooh, I'm excited, but I'm also a little bit nervous. Ah, it'll be fine. You'll be fine. I will be. It'll be fine. So um, this week we have had so many people sending in questions and they're such good questions. We thought we would just focus on them in this week's mm-hmm. episode. So are you ready for the first question, Stephen? I am totally ready for the and, I, and the voices and accents oh, are geez. becoming the highlight <laughs> once we've gone through the full Noddy universe. <laughs> OK, well, we haven't actually. I'll, I'll do this one as Smarty Saurus, who's... Um, We'll do the English version of Smarty, the British version. She's quite shy and she likes science and she's a bit clumsy. Thank you for the background information. It's important for me to know that. That's good. This is from Alex Hall. As I'm sure you know, since Marvel became very successful with their comic book cinematic universe, in brackets MCU, (laughs) um, universes have seemed to become a bit of a buzzword around the movie world, with a lot of the big companies trying to create their own. My question, however, is how much does the failure of a universe cost, considering how much must go into all the groundwork to set one up? I'm guessing it's quite significant. The best example, perhaps, is Universal's attempt to create a monster's universe with a reboot of the Mummy film starring Tom Cruise, which I haven't seen yet, which was a box office flop that ultimately killed off all the films of other monsters which was supposed to follow. <laughs> but, did you enjoy that? I, I, I did enjoy it. I also enjoyed the sort of uh, the sort of slightly patronising, like, oh, you didn't do very well, Tom Cruise, did you? You flopped. <laughs> you killed off other monsters, didn't you? That's what happened. I'm just enjoying the juxtaposition between the seriousness that the industry takes all of that and then your question. So, uh, thank, thank you, you Alex question. Hall. Yes, thank you, Alex. Um, I hope you, you're okay with that accent. <laughs> it's kind of tough now. Um, so, yeah, so he's uh, he or she uh, was asking about um, cinematic universes. And uh, one of the things that's already we've got to try and do is disentangle what a cinematic universe is from a franchise um, and from a series. Uh, do you want, early on, do you want to take a guess at this, the difference between a franchise and a universe? Um... No, I don't know the difference. <laughs> no, I, I don't want don't. to. I'm stumped. Go on. I didn't realise that was one of the answers I could give when readers write in. I could just say no. I'm going to do that more <laughs> often. <laughs> I didn't realise this was an option. Um, yes, so it, it is a bit of a nebulous thing. There's no like one body or person who can like definitively say. But in general usage, there is actually sort of a difference. So is you've it got... the same characters? Now I'm now I'm interrupting. <laughs> is it like it can only like for example? If it's um, a, a Smarty Saurus franchise, mm-hmm. is are, are the films only about Smarty Saurus? And if it's a universe, is a, it can be about the other characters in Toyland. Yeah, I mean that's a, that, yeah, that's spot on. Um, well done, everybody. <laughs> so yeah, like it tends to be a franchise will follow one 
journey and it it may follow literally one character or one group of characters or it might might evolve and they might change but fundamentally like if you think about Fast and the Furious there's sort of one main uh, storyline that's going through however bonkers and then there there might be spin-offs like Hobbs and Shaw but they're seen as spin-offs and so enough spin-offs and you might create a universe but a universe is sort of lots of disparate different stories that that maybe told separately or together like for example the Avengers film had like things like Captain America and Thor and things like that and then there was the Avengers or in the UK it was called Avengers Assemble because people thought we'd get confused with the 1960s TV show I mean that's the level that we're at uh, and that's what the level people think we're at um but yeah so they then came together to be in one film but then they also went on to have their own films there's a new Thor film coming out um uh Thor 3 4 God of Thunder uh must be 4 right yeah um and so, yeah, the universe is is all these things coming together and moving apart. And the studios must massively prefer universe because it's a lot more flexible. You know, you can imagine if you've got one person, like whoever's playing James Bond, if they want to carry on playing James Bond, they have quite a lot of power to say to the studios, I'm not going to do it or I want this money if they're out of contract, obviously. Right. Whereas with the universe, you could say, well this film that we want to do as part of our universe is actually proving quite expensive or the star is proving a problem. Let's um, jettison them. Um and also with things like Star Wars, you can make TV series. Like they've got the Boba Fett TV series, The Mandalorian. That's all part of the literal universe of Star Wars, as well as the figurative one. Um, yes. And so that's a lot more flexible for them. Um, and so uh, biggest, I mean, if we look at box office gross, uh, which is just cinema takings around the world, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, the MCU is the biggest. It's about uh, sorry, $26.5 billion so far. Um, which is huge across yeah. about 28 films, more coming out. That's more than Star Wars. That's two and a half times what Star Wars has grossed. Wow. Um, there have been more films though. So, yes. um, but it's two and a half times and there's only been sort of twice as many films or so. Um, but yeah, so the MCU has been doing very well. And then you've got Spider-Man, which is interesting because they sort of rebooted that universe a few times. And it also now overlaps with the MCU. So you could say the MCU includes some of the Spider-Man films, but they're made by different companies. So already this idea, we've already got universes collapsing. Oh, yeah. So that's kind of complicated. And then you've got the Wizarding World, which is $9.6 billion, uh, And that's all the Harry Potter and um, and so Harry Potter itself, you'd and probably Fantastic regard it, Beasts. yeah, exa- exactly. So you'd probably have regarded that as a series until the Fantastic Beasts. So they, they, a series can become a universe, but I don't think a universe can become a series. It's kind of, but mm. it's funny though because we think of it as a modern phenomenon, and it definitely is a big thing that's going on now. And and the MCU has kicked off, it really heightened everyone's attention of wow, we can make a lot of money and have a lot of control. But it's not that they didn't exist before. Um, it may not have been used the same language. So there's, if you go back in time, there's a lot more of an overlap between series and and universe. But there was, there's one that's had, so it's um, Chinese films, a, a character called, uh, a true, uh, a real person, but a character called Wu Feng Hung uh, and had 123 movies over nearly 70 years of movies. Oh my so the first gosh. one was in 1949. But that's not the, so the problem when you look at like how long a series has been going, all you're doing is counting the first film and the most recent film. And so when you do that, The Invisible Man had a film in 1933 and then it had one in 2020. So that's been and going I did for... not like that one. Really? It was a bit too scary. Oh, really? So we've, we've found your limit now. This is where we're sort of calibrating your film Well, tapes. I was expecting it to be like a thriller, more of an action, something cool, and it ended up basically just being a horror. And I just wasn't ready for it. Would you have liked the semi-visible man? Would you like to have known where he was for more of it? I would just like, I would like him to all be completely invisible apart from a willy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Somehow I knew you were going there. <laughs> I'm pretty sure those films exist. Child, yeah, but I don't want him to do anything with his willy. Just, just you want to just, just float there, dangling, just float. yeah, floating, floating, wobbling around would be funny. To me. Wow, uh, whoever is uh, listen, still listening, <laughs> both of you, uh, you should patent this. Uh, you could make, uh, you know, I was going to suggest actually as an exercise that we develop the uh, Jess Robinson cinematic universe, but now <laughs> I don't think I want to. <laughs> It's not even 10 minutes in and I've already lowered the tone. I'm very sorry, everybody. <laughs> By this point, everyone's come to expect it. It's their fault, really. You've been consistent. It's on them. Um, but yeah, that, so that, that first Invisible Man film that didn't have that um, issue was in 1933 and there was a more recent one. So that's been going for nearly 90 years now. So that's a long time for... And so whether that's universal series, I don't know, but... But the modern phenomenon was really kicked off by Marvel, who 
they had so the, the part of the reason that they did it so well was that the comic books that all this is based on has, has already been developing a universe both marvel comics and dc have long had to deal with this because they created characters in the comics in the 19 you know 20s 30s i think and onwards and then comics come out at a much quicker rate than movies and so in the last you know century or so when they're trying to develop multiple storylines and things they've had crossover episodes and all that sort of stuff and so they've kind of got used to as an institution working out how you have standalone stories and also how you then bring them together and you know the one of the really impressive things about all the avengers films is how they do manage to keep all the characters separate but they also work together and then it doesn't ruin the other movies and so that's kind of cool um and they said so they got very good at that and then dc tried to do that um with their superman ones and they've had sort of sometimes it's worked sometimes it hasn't it's sort of mixed reviews as to right. whether their universe works and whether they've integrated things correctly or not um but who definitely well, everyone agrees definitely didn't work was universal's dark universe oh. dark universe so did you see the tom cruise film the mummy no we nearly watched it the other night and my stepson said no thank you how old is your stepson uh, he's 11 now. Got good taste. <laughs> it's, not, it's, not, it's not good. It's kind of a, it's a bit of a mess um, as a film. And it's, and it looks like from the outside that it, it, I mean, it really did suffer from what happened behind the scenes as far as they had many writers and they tried different things to like, they, they were, they were sort of changing the, the direction during the making of the whole thing. Um, and it's interesting because it was the point of it was to set up what they were calling the dark universe. And funnily enough, Universal Studios that made that, they're the ones that have the rights to a lot of these historical, like early horror films, like The Invisible Man, like um, Wolfman, Frankenstein. Um, and so they've made these films before. So they almost have a, more of a right to do this, although some of those characters are also in public domain as well. But mm -hmm. they have been making those films since the 1930s. So on paper, you'd think, well, actually, they know these characters, they already control them, they don't have to pay for them. And so they would should be able to integrate them. And they were they were planning on doing that. There was a photo they did um, uh, where they had uh, all of the stars that were going to be in the future movies. So they, they knew Tom Cruise was in The Mummy, yeah. but they were also going to do an Invisible Man with Johnny Depp. Didn't, that didn't happen. Um, Dr. Jekyll with Russell Crowe. That didn't happen. Mm. Um, Frankenstein's Monster with Javier Bar Barren. And then there was a Bride of Frankenstein, which I'm not sure if they'd cast by that point. Me! <laughs> and they they did a photo shoot that's a bit like it's very cheesy but it's them all standing around like looking like they're all chums but it was actually a composite photo so it's another example of just like how um it just didn't like it's it, it looks like they're all together but it was sort of yeah taped on from you know afterwards like um, they do with the real housewives sure <laughs> exactly i'm glad we brought it back to a more relatable <laughs> reference um <laughs> But so the film itself didn't actually bomb. It did all right. Like um, it cost somewhere between 120 and 190 million, which is a big difference, but we don't really know. And also how you count the tax rebate and stuff is complicated, but it made, or it grossed worldwide 400. So even on the worst calculation, it almost certainly didn't lose money, but it was definitely a flop insofar as people weren't, people were hoping it would make more money, the studio. Mm -hmm. And if it's supposed to launch a whole universe, then it needs to do really well because it needs to get people excited and want to see the other ones. And so it, and it got terrible reviews as well. Um, uh, I've, I've, for this, um, for the podcast, as I do little bits of research beforehand, uh, when I get sort of really stuck in the numbers and I want to do something fun, I go and read the reviews of some of these movies. So I've, every now and then I'm going to find like quotes that I just really liked. Um, so there was an Uprox, uh, review of the mummy and it said, if you like incomprehensible collections of things that vaguely resemble other things you might've enjoyed in the past, the mummy is the movie for you. <laughs> <laughs> so, That's brilliant. Uh, Vince Mancini from the Mark Rooks, thank you very much for that review. I very much enjoyed that. But um, but nobody got excited about um, the next movie. And so uh, Bride of Frankenstein was postponed and then canceled. And then they took down the website they had for the Dark Universe. But I mean, it looked like they didn't do it very well. And funnily enough, um, one of the other studios, I think Warner owned... Um, the phrase the dark universe because it had been used in a DC comic and they were planning on using it so it it was going to be rocky in every area right um, and the the chairwoman of Universal later on said that it was a failed experiment and she said um, we had an attempt at, at interlocking our monsters but it was a failed attempt what we realized is that characters were inde uh, indelible for a reason but there's no urgency behind them and certainly the world was not asking for a shared universe of classic monsters but we've gone back and created an approach that's filmmaker first at any budget range. 
So they still own the characters and they still want to explore them, but they just decided not to try and link them all together. Right. Um, and so the question itself was about like, what's the costs when something fails? And it's, I mean, it's hard to know because a lot of it is opportunity cost. It's like, well, how much would they have made? And what else have they spent their time doing? You know, so um, at the very least, so let's, let's go through some of the costs of like what it might be to develop the Jess Robinson cinematic universe. Which Brilliant. Worries me a lot. Um, <laughs> worries me a lot. Now, um, so if you're Disney and you're creating, well, they weren't creating, but they, they now control the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and also Star Wars, they had to buy both those companies. So yeah. they, they bought Marvel and they bought Lucasfilm. So that cost them billions. Whereas, uh, as I said, Universal already owned things like Dracula and Frankenstein and Invisible Man and things like that. So we, we're going to assume that you, we're creating your cinematic universe. So you already own the rights to you. Um, but we don't want it to be a film series. So you're going to have to. You don't have to do it right now. But you're going to have to think of all the other characters that exist or just exist in your head. doesn't right. matter as long as they can, you know, we can have separate movies. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to have to get the control the rights for them. So mm-hmm. we're going to have to get the IP for the voices in your head. Um, and then let's say we want to turn this into a big universe. So we've then got to do all the writing and research and stuff for all these separate movies. We don't have to write all the scripts straight away, but we need to have a sense of how they link together. Um, and this is what Marvel did so well is because they've had experience doing this and because they've had so many different stories in the comics, they're able to think way ahead. They're probably planning movies 10 years from now yeah. saying this character will eventually become that character who will eventually do this and will need this. So we'll set that up and, so we're going to have to think about what 10 years in the future for the Jess Robinson cinematic mm-hmm. universe looks like. Yeah, I'll be in a facility. Um, yes, well, yeah, looking exactly the same thanks to increasing amounts of visual effects. Absolutely, right? and, and, and makeup Botox. And, exactly, exactly, real world and, and digital. That's, that's how you get effects to work. But a special effects, but a visual effects. Um, yes, so then we've got to think about like, okay, we've got to plan all those things out and there might be concept art, there might be, you know, logos and websites and market, you know, marketing and things like that. Um, and then me as the uh, as the studio exec, so I'm spending a lot of my time on this. And uh, studio execs, I looked up how much they're paid, and it's tricky to tell because they get um, salary and shares. And so I can tell you how much they get, how much a lot of these guys got last year. It's yeah. about to correct myself, but I think these are almost all guys. Yes, they are. Yeah, that's a, that's a horrible Freudian slip, isn't it? Um, well, but, but we believe it. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I, um, but yeah, so um, how much do you think Bob Iger, for, who's in charge of Walt Disney, got last year as a compensation package? Eight million. Um, do you want to try again? My higher, higher or lower? <laughs> <laughs> uh, higher. Oh, fucking hell. Uh, okay, if it helps. 20 over million. That, over that year, the stock performance of Disney went down 13%. So the idea being that, you know, if you're saying to somebody, well, you know, the CEO gets paid a huge amount of money because they are, you know, shepherding the whole thing. Uh, and it may or may not be his fault. I'm not saying that, you know, entirely it's up to him. It's just that's the argument for this. Well, no, he got uh, $46 million. Jesus. Um, Which is uh, Jesus Andy- and shit all at the time. <laughs> Let's have a, a, a check about uh, Andy Yazzie, who's from um, Amazon. Yeah. Uh, um, what do you reckon that the C-suite of Amazon should get? Well, I feel that if you're asking about Amazon after Disney, it's got to be an even bigger number. Otherwise, it will be boring. Well, their stock performance went up by 5% over that period. So that helps. This is his performance. 58 million. I appreciate the specificity. Uh, 212. Fucking hell. Excuse my language. <laughs> and then let's do Endeavor content. So we talked about Endeavor content last week. This was um, the arm of the agency that's subsequently been sold. But Ari Emanuel, who uh, apparently, and as far as I can see is accurately, was the model for Ari Gold in Entourage, the sweary agent. Um, they, he got uh, a pay and bonus and, and also vested some stock. Um, how much do you think uh, he got paid last year? Five hundred and fifty-six million. Three hundred and eight. So on average, oh, you probably got them all right. But yeah, <laughs> but yeah, a third of a billion. Wow. Uh, just in twenty twenty-one. So 
if we're saying that those, you know, that, that that sort of range of person is like the reason they're in the top job is that they can create these universes. They are, they have the power to create a universe. Uh, then uh, the opportunity cost, let's say that whoever was in charge of, of Universal over the years that they were developing the Dark Universe, the fact that Dark Universe didn't happen or didn't work, yeah, it didn't happen eventually, it didn't become a big cinematic universe, mm. then you could argue that some of that money should be sort of put onto the um, ledger of how much was lost when it fails and right. ask the question um we're then paying for, for talent um for actors so tom cruise apparently got 13 million for the mummy although he would have got a mass he's got a massive back end he would have had a huge he would have had a, what <laughs> we would call it body shame well you know that the industry term is he would have had a healthy back end so <laughs> i think at his age that's impressive um but yeah, so he would have, but if the, he would have still got a lot of money because the movie says, said still performed well. Who knows? Maybe fifty or a hundred million. I'm not sure. But he got a load of money, and if if that's okay for the film, but also if you're trying to set up a universe, then that's a sunk cost. That's a shame. Yeah. Um, and marketing, and then as I said, like what could have been. So there was um, a case. Uh, this was about twenty years ago. So people didn't refer to it as a universe at the time. It was seen as a franchise or a series. But I, you could imagine it would have otherwise become one, which was the. There was a Matthew McConaughey film called Sahara, um, right. and that that was based on Clive Custer's uh, character um, Dirt Dirt Pick, Dirk Pitt, D I R K, and then surname P I T T. Um, that was like a character that's in quite a few books, and and so everyone was really excited. Great, we'll make this film Sahara, and it will make a load of money, and then we'll be able to make more of them. And you could imagine if it was done nowadays. Uh, that would become a universe and, and whatever. And certainly if you've got a load of novels and they're successful, then you can imagine you can just pick stories and moments from all of them. Um, but the budget went, they went over budget, but they should have spent about 80 million and they spent 160. It's quite considerably over budget. Um, I don't know how your Edinburgh show is going, but I don't think it's going to go 80 million <laughs> over budget. Um, but I also suspect that you're not doing what they did, which is it went to court and everyone sued everyone else. And the producers and the, and the author really fought it out. They fought it out for about 10 years in various court cases. Um, and apparently the legal bills got to about 20 million. Um, and there was loads of things that were leaked about it. That was one of the reasons it was interesting for us as watchers, because we got to see various accusations they were making. And for example, part of the reason the budget climbed so much was of bribes to the Moroccan government. So maybe that's what you need to be doing for your... I think I do. Yeah, I mean, if you're not bribing the Moroccan government, are you really living? That's my question. Um, I think the answer's no. No, I think that's, this is the sign. Um, although, obviously, this is now, we're talking about Sahara, which didn't work. But so you, there's, there was an example, and we're hearing this a bit with uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Again, not a franchise, or not sorry, not a universe, but a, but a franchise or series, where um, there's lots of accusations that, uh, I mean, Depp's agent said that he's not in the sixth film because of the allegations of abuse from Amber Heard. We don't know. Obviously, we have. I can't say anything about what actually happened when it comes to the allegations. But mm. we don't even know if he's not in it for that reason or whether that was something that the agent said so that when they're claiming damages in court, it could be higher. But it's definitely true. He's not in the next film. And, and mm. you can imagine if he'd had a more kind of um, sedate personal life for whatever reason, there almost certainly would have been a film and he would have got yeah. 20 million and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it's not always possible to know why something failed. But um, and also not possible necessarily to know exactly how much was lost. But if you look at the MCU making twenty something billion dollars gross, then you're thinking there could be quite a lot. So yeah, it's there's there's a lot of there's a lot riding on that, and you could imagine a lot of money is being lost and potential money. Um, so are we are we are we committed to doing the the given that how much we might lose if we get mm. it wrong, the Jess Cinematic Universe. Should we do this or not? I think just yes, because um, I'm really used to losing lots of money with Edinburgh. I feel like that that's what I've been warming up to all my life. To be fair, so, that might be your main skill. Sure. <laughs> um, voice is number two. Number one, <laughs> losing money. Shoving money pursuit. down the toilet. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a friend who's, who's a serial entrepreneur and he's had loads of successful um, uh, investments, but he's also had a load of failed ones. And he was going to write an autobiography with something like, I lost three million and so can you. Which I <laughs> just thought was a great title. I like that. I'll so there we go. It. Well, we'll 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 think about whether it's whether it makes sense to invest all that money into a universe. But what normally happens is you have one film that will do well, then they'll launch it. And so, um, we the Marvel Cinematic Universe didn't come out as a universe straight away. It came out as a relatively small budget film, Iron Man, still big budget, but small within the context of all of this. And then they sort of moved up, moved up, moved up. Whereas Dark Universe, they try to go straight into a universe. So maybe we'll ease everyone into a universe. That's good. And I think maybe in like 
a few month in a few months time um if the listeners are you know still on board with voices in my head um we should probably do a crowdfunder and and get it going right we we do i have realized that we're going to have to make sure that all these characters in your universe are not all from noddy um, <laughs> you, no some of them will be my mom <laughs> well as long as she signs away her rights that's fine that's fine that's that's absolutely fine that was a good question alex hall we liked it yeah, thank you for that. That was a good one. It was a long question and a long answer, but it was worth it. This one is a shorter question, and I think um, you just need a one-word answer for this. This is your challenge. <laughs> <laughs> this is from Joe and Charlie. I don't know whether Joe and Charlie listened together and wrote it in, or Joe and Charlie just asked the same question. I think Joe and Charlie are married. Mm-hmm. And they say... How much control does the director have over what people get paid on set? Does this change with the scale of the production or the prominence of the director? Now, given that only Charlie was talking, what happened to Charlie halfway no, through that? both of them! <laughs> <laughs> um, so how much control does the director have over how much people get paid? And does this change with the scale of production and the prominence of the director? Um, yeah, great question, uh, Joe and or Charlie. I'm going to imagine one of them is, is the more prominent than the other. Maybe, maybe Charlie is the power behind the throne and Joe is the mouthpiece. I feel like that might make sure. um, more sense. We're going to go with that. Um, so, in principle, the director is not in charge of the logistics of the film. That's the sort of main thing to think about. The The director is in charge of the creative elements. And it does differ in different places. And, and as they allude to, it does differ depending on the scale of the production. Because the larger the production, the more the money people um, will have say over things because there's more risk. Whereas the smaller the production, it tends to be that the creatives will have more power. Um, yes. But even different cultures are slightly different. So in European film, the director is king. Like that's the general idea is that the, we are uh, director-led. I say we, but we in, in the Britain, we sit somewhere between Europe and America, geographically, culturally, emotionally. Um, and so in, in sort of real European film, the director is the main person and they're seen when the film wins an award. It's generally seen as the director having won the award. Um, with Cannes, when they're listed in the Cannes Guide, it's the director that's the main sort of seen as the main author of the film. Right. Whereas in American film, on, if you go on lower budget on indie films, it's the producer or producers. And so they're producer led generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on higher budget films in Hollywood, it's much more the studios or the execs. Mm-hmm. So there will be producers, but the director is underneath the studio, underneath the producers. And there'll be multiple producers, multiple production companies, perhaps. And then in television, the writer, and especially American television, um, the writer is king, really. They're known as showrunners. And they're managing, they will have probably created the idea for the show. And then they will have shepherded it through development. And then they'll they'll manage, they'll probably write a lot of the, the episodes and the ideas. But they'll also manage a whole writer's room and stuff. So that's much more writer led. So in each case, it's slightly different, but it can be whatever you want. There isn't really um, rules for how much, like the director could have more control, um, but there are minimums. So quite often with the unions, it's not that they say exactly what something should be. They just say, this is the minimum that you're allowed to be paid. And this is the minimum amount of rights or control you're allowed to, ha- allow- allowed to have. So a big director would have more money than the minimum, and they would also have more power and control than the minimum. But um, as a, as a, principle the director doesn't get to choose how much anyone's paid because how much everyone's paid is already like uh, sorted by the unions the so that when I ever when I say the studios have negotiated this usually it's what I'm referring to as the alliance of motion picture and television producers and they're the people that have got uh, collective bargaining agreements with about 80 different unions and so they'll be highly regulated how much costume designers get paid how much extras how much you know storyboard artists so the director wouldn't be able to fiddle with any of those money and they could say to the producer hey I want you to pay this person more but it would be up to the producer and also they wouldn't really do that they might indirectly say I want more time with this person which costs more money but they wouldn't necessarily get paid more Um, but you can I mean you 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 certainly certainly around the fringes smaller films or, or more proactive directors will choose to influence their crew a lot more so Sarah Gavron um wonderful person wonderful director she did Brick Lane and Suffragette and then more recently, she did a film called Rocks, which was around uh, about a group of East London schoolgirls. And her cast, her crew was about 75% female, which is That's heavily cool. female. It is very cool. And, and not and just because it only cost 70% of the pay. 
<laughs> yeah, she's, she's, she's an evil person. She's very clever. The bottom line, she just wants to pay people less. Um, also, she's just looking for it to be pretty. I think that's what she was mainly doing. No, no, that's entirely unfair. Um, no, she, uh, so the casting was interesting because she went to schools and, and met with people and sort of found the people before locking in the script. But the crew, you, uh, she hasn't talked publicly about like how that was the case, but she's choosing, you know, she's always got to choose this person over that person. And so if she feels that this is a story that would benefit from a female perspective, or at least she just didn't have the biases that a lot of other people have when they're hiring people, her crew ended up being 75% female. And so it's a reflection that she had an effect. You could imagine another director doing exactly the same job and then having a different effect. Yeah. Um, but this this speaks to what can the director do. And so I decided to go back and look at what rights the directors have under the DGA rules, the Directors Guild of America. Mm -hmm. And this is something, as I said, the studios uh, have signed up to. And so the the right to how much people are paid is not, is not in the rule book at all. They don't get to choose that. But they do have a whole list of rights. So I thought I'd tell you. So um, they describe the director's function as... The director contributes to all creative elements regarding to the, to the making of the motion picture and participates in molding and integrating them into one dramatic aesthetic whole. So there's the sort of description of how directors describe themselves. Yeah. Um, they're only allowed one director, unless and very few exceptions, only one director is allowed to be on any one film. Um, and so when you have like the Coen brothers or other sort of, or Daniels that did the recent film, Everyone, uh, every everything, everywhere, all at once. Um, which, if you haven't seen, is one of the best films of the year. I highly recommend that film. Made by two by two people who refer to themselves as Daniels because they both have Daniel now. Um, and um, so that they have to get you have to get permission from the DGA, and they sometimes don't give it to you. And so I think I'm right in saying that when Grindhouse came out, uh, was it Grindhouse? No, it was uh, Sin City, one of the films with Rodriguez. He wanted to have two people credited as director, and they said no, and so he left the union. Um, oh. Yeah. Um, but so the, the director's got the right to participate in all decisions uh, concerning the selection of cast and other creative personnel. So the right to participate is a bit different to gets to pick whoever they want. Um, but they have also another right they have is the uh, approval rights to third parties and any other creative matter involving the production. For example, the script locations, set designs, construction, shooting schedule and post-production shooting. So that's approval rights. Um, so that's quite a lot. And then there's there's a number of these uh, sentences, which you can imagine if they were written as they are intended to be written, they would be very sweary in capital letters. But <laughs> the, the final version that comes out in the official document is very sort of, you know, considered nice. So it says things like, the producer shall, in good faith, consider your advice and suggestions. Ha ha ha. Exactly. Um, but there keep is also... your fucking nose out. <laughs> and then another right they have, the producer may not discriminate or retaliate against you because you assert your creative rights. Um, so yeah, there, there is a literally a non-retaliation clause. They, they, they've had to say explicitly the producer is not allowed to retaliate against you because you assert your creative rights. Um, right. Which is funny. Um, the, also, there's things like um, no person already assigned to the motion picture may replace you. So if a director does get replaced, it can't be somebody already on the production, okay. which is interesting because I presume it's because producers or writers or other people have thought I can do a better job and just sort of elbowed that person oh, aside. Over. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've, you've gone very distant. Have you moved away from the mic? Oh, I'm sorry. Here I am. <laughs> you, you, you know we're doing a podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Sorry. I'm so sorry, everybody. <laughs> just drinking my tea. Oh, yeah. Well, that's allowed then. I got tea as well. Um so yeah, so the uh, but then then there's also the next tier down from like okay, so you don't get to choose how much they're paid, but you probably get you have to be consulted as to who they are. The next step down from that is saying, well, they have to tell you at least. So in these in the DGA agreement, the producers agree that they the producers must be uh, the directors must be told all the creative personnel. This is when they first come up with the project. All the creative personnel already employed. Um, the, what the film is, what they're expecting the film to be, any rights over the script, the budget, the story. Um, the producer should also fully disclose to you any other creative commitments relating to the picture. So you're supposed to be told everything about this. And you can imagine that comes out of years of not being told this, not being, oh, yeah, we've signed, this person's going to write it. We forgot to mention that when we negotiated with you. Or oh, whatever. okay. Um, Quite nicely, the, the producer must provide you with a private office at the studio and a private facility on or next to the set. Um, the yeah, office yeah, must be large enough for at least two people. That doesn't say what those people will be doing, but it says at least two people and have a door that shuts, adequate ventilation. 
a phone, a desk, a desk chair, uh, and good lighting. Um, wow. So you can imagine they've been being put in a hovel and then someone said, right, we need to go and open up the agreement and change it. Um, How interesting. Yeah. So uh, there's the, another one of those shouty ones. The producer may not in bad faith or capriciously reduce the budget or shooting schedule. Right. They're not allowed to be capricious. Um, but yeah, so there's, and there's, there's all sorts of other clauses in there about sort of uh, like you, during the um, post-production, if you've been, if you filmed the whole thing. So uh, if it says, if you directed 100% of the scheduled principal photography, so principal photography is the main shoot, yeah. you may not be replaced except for gross willful misconduct. So there's lots of protection around post-production. Like you, they have your, you have a right to do a director's cut. Um, they say the director's the director's right to prepare his or her director's cut is absolute. Um, and then you must be considered. You you must be like um, spoken about if you're gonna like. You must be consulted if there's gonna be a an edit for the DVD or for airlines or they're gonna do it three D or. But none of that. All of that relates to the sort of job of creatively being the sole author, leading the team that's creating this film. None of it is about the financial side of how much someone's paid or anything like that. Super good question. Thank you, Joe and Charlie. I love that. Um, our final question is from Paul McCudden. Where's he from? Oh, I think he's uh, he from is, oh, I, I know. He is oh. like from the, this place. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he is friends with Kim and Kylie and all of the Jenners. Uh, Paul McCudden says... Following on from the recent question about book rights, you mentioned that the big money follows when it finally gets made into a film. Taking real big boys out of the equation like Harry Potter. Oh my gosh, I love Harry. How much do critically acclaimed books typically get paid? E.g. Kite Runner, seen it, Gone Girl, love it. Life of Pi, amazing. And how easy is it for those authors to negotiate profit percentages? <laughs> Did you like I'm, that? I, th- this is the main reason I'm doing the podcast. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. <laughs> Sorry, Paul, you're welcome. Um, also, Paul, Paul knew what was happening when he sent the question. Yeah. Um, yes. So how much do they get sort of uh, up front and, and later on? So let's let's go back to the example of, of negotiating your book. Like, what would you be thinking in your mind if, if I said to you, right, I can give you a certain amount up front, which is a bit larger, yeah. but then there's a percentage, a smaller percentage on the back end, or maybe nothing at the percentage price. Or in reverse, I'll give you a small amount up front, but I'll give you a big chunk of change. Assuming I'm not going to screw you out the percentages. Yeah, don't. What kind of... Th- <laughs> I think I could. Um, but assuming I'm, I've chosen not to, mm-hmm. uh, what would you be trying to guess in advance to decide whether you take a little up front for more later on or vice versa? You as the author. I want, I, want, I want more up front <laughs> because uh, I know this industry a bit now. And I don't feel safe. So <laughs> just give me as much as you can now. And then if percent, because I bet I'd be wheedled out of my percentage somehow. There's going to be an awful loophole, isn't there? So, yeah. yes, I think everyone will be trying to wheedle you at some point uh, <laughs> during that negotiation. So, all right. Well, assuming that you, well, let's assume you're not going to get anything later on, or at least you've written it off. What, um, it's a negotiation between you and I mm. and me being the producer of the studio. What's going to give you more power to ask for more money? Um, I will let you, (laughs) uh, choose who, no, I won't. What will give me more power? What, what, and what could happen in the world to, to make it so that we have a negotiation that gets more, you know, you get paid more upfront. Um, well, how about my profile is raised Mm-hmm. super high and yep. so i will say i'll only do this film you can have all of the rights but mm-hmm. i know that jeffrey and lucas and uh some other people really definitely want the film as well but i'll go with you but you've got to make the deal now great. okay great so yeah so there's three things there that's great so one there's the profile so that you're you're very hot right now you were on a poster in edinburgh and someone saw you it's man-made fibers yeah. <laughs> um secondly uh there's an immediacy there's like well time pressure which can always help and then thirdly uh competition 
you know, well, if if I don't agree to give you the, uh, so I get them half, all right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, so if if I don't give you the eight and a half million dollars up front that you're asking for, you'll go to someone else. And this guy Jeffrey apparently is going to give you eight point six. Yeah. Uh, and so if that were true, then yeah, that would that would definitely make you know. I would be like, well, on the one hand, I really want to get this. There's there's, there's just the social construct of the pressure. I want to be the cool person that got the movie, and you know, it, it might reflect on me and how good I am at my job. But also, if your profile's high or the book's selling well, then I would presume that the film will sell well, and because it's good, and also because there's the marketing and there's a fan base. Um, massive and then fan I've, base through this massive, podcast. Massive fan base, um, and uh, yeah, so that's one of the things. And then also the the idea that um, if I've I've got to option something, and I and I have I do have friends in development who have said uh, when I asked about why was that film made, a film based on a book. Um, one of them said, well, we had to make something. And I said, what do you mean? They went, well, I've been there for a bit and I hadn't made something recently and I'll get fired at some point. So I had to do something. Oh, and wow. I was like, yeah, and, and I, I won't say any more just so I don't out them. But yeah, there was basically this idea that I have to do something. So that's not the, the healthiest, but at the same time, we, the films, and studios that, have to release did movies. That, did that film do okay? It did middling, but it has got oh, big names be. in it. No, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. Um, I'm just I'm really because it's not my story. I don't want to. I believe oh, uh, I know it's true. You're one of those. Come on, gossip. I'll swap you for a gossip. You're not supposed to tell me. Okay, we'll do a gossip mm. swap. Okay, good. Well, that was a separate pos- separate podcast gossip swap. Um, so so yeah, so all those factors will come into play. So if your book has already come out and it's already been very successful, then then you're in a very strong position. So. Uh, for example, Gone Girl had sold like two million copies uh, from a fairly unknown writer. She'd written a couple of books before, and it was a very good book, hence why it did so well. This was Gillian Flynn. Yeah. And then it came out in June 2012, the book. And then by the end of the year, it sold already two million copies. So people obviously wanted this, and they could see, okay, well, this is going to have a bit of a feeding frenzy. Mm. And so it was Ruth Witherspoon's company that, that originally optioned it. So option is the small amount of money up front. Um, but they then took it to different studios and it was Fox that then paid Gillian $1.5 million, um, which is a lot for an unknown author, like one and a half million dollars. But she also wrote the screenplay, which she'd never done before either. So half a million of that was a writing fee, which is also very high. Um, and then she'll also get more if they make um, more. So if they if they then sort of actually produce the movie on principle photography, which obviously they did. So in the end, she probably got about two and a half million uh, as well as the book doing a lot better uh, because obviously the film and also she may have got a percentage of the rights as well. And Fox said at the time it was one of the largest deals Fox has ever done. Or no, oh. in recent years. So right. that's the high end. Be a couple of million is unusual. Um, and she did a very good job. Like not only is the book good, she also wrote the script, which she hadn't done it's before. It's a great film. It's a great film. And it's a really good example of an author not having to be famous, but having the power of the success they had because of the quality of the film. Um, moving on to another example that is about success, but maybe not the quality of the film necessarily. Mm-hmm. So um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Haven't how, how many... seen it and I'm proud. Mm-hmm. But I might want to watch it now. You know, I've I've read them. Have you? Mm. Yeah. So um, years ago, <laughs> I had a, a gym trainer and she was uh, telling me about them. She was reading them and she was like, they're really good. And I was like, I'm sure they're not. Like, I'm sure. <laughs> like, I've just heard enough. Like, I, nothing about them appeals to me. And she was like, no, 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 no. Honestly, honestly, read them. They're really good. So I, I read the first one and it's really not very good. It's very easy to read, but it's really not good at all. And I was just like, well, and I, and so I, was, I read it quite quickly and I don't read a lot of fiction anyway. So it, it's taken up a big percentage of the fiction books I've read. And I, and I was chatting to her about it often. She kept saying, no, 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 it's really good. And then when I finished it, I went back to her and went, it's, it's not, it's really bad. She went, no, 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 the second one, the second one gets better. And I was like, are you sure? And she's like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I read it and it didn't. <laughs> and so <laughs> I just completely believe, I think the second one is the one that ends with, it's all told from someone, from Anna, the character's own personal point of view. But at the end of the second one, I think they just, she flips to someone else's point of view entirely. It just like cuts to someone else's head, which is the weirdest, like, and it really bothered me as a writer. I was like, I just, this is just terrible writing. And then, um, then I had to complete the trilogy. So, uh, but the the journey of making the film, of making the so book. Sorry, funny that you read it. I know. The thing is, I, I said I read a lot of nonfiction, but I don't read much fiction. And the Fifty Shades trilogy uh, is looms large. Wow. Um, 
I'm but, crime thriller after crime thriller and and uh, hardly any non-fiction. You're Gone Girl, I'm Fifty Shades. That's, yeah. That reflects terribly. But, <laughs> yeah. but the, the, when you look at the... So I, I'm not impressed with the writing, but I'm very impressed with the author, E.L. James, as far as her journey, and I'm really pleased for her, what she's been through and what she's done. So she... Um, it started as Twilight fan fiction. So whenever you think that it can't get worse, it actually sort of goes lower. <laughs> so she wrote a Twilight fan fiction following the two characters, Edward yeah. Cullen and Bella Snod. Uh, and, and she wrote under the pen name Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. Oh, God. And it was all fan fiction. It was all public. And as he got all this sort of kind of sexy, I think it was called Master of the Universe. And as he got too sexy, the fan fiction uh, collection, you know, community said, oh, this is not for, you know, this is not the Twilight that we know. So she sort of self-published it under, she changed the characters' names, find and replace, and then put it on her own site and then self-published it. And it picked up and it did better and better and better. And it sold huge amounts. Wow. I mean, so I think it sold more... Each, uh, the whole trilogy of books has sold more than any individual Harry Potter book. Wow. Um, yeah. And, and I read somewhere a while ago, which I thought was really interesting, is that it came out at exactly the time where the Kindle and other e-readers were coming out. And so the success of the e-reader and the success of Fifty Shades are integrated because you needed to have reasons. People, why would someone buy an, e, an e-reader? Well, then there were these salacious books you wouldn't necessarily be sitting on the tube everyone knowing you're reading essentially porn but no one knows when you're reading everyone thinks you're reading Jane Austen um actually bad example that's not a million miles away but everyone <laughs> thinks you're thinks you're reading War and Peace and actually you're not and so the sort of being able to be sort of read whatever the hell you like like no one knows what you're listening to on the tube either and so people can have a wider range of things because they don't feel like they're being judged um so it was kind of time and place but um just to sort of uh have some fun I, I read some reviews of the original book uh, would you like to know what Salman Rushdie thought of Fifty Shades? <laughs> yes, I would, please. <laughs> uh, he said, I have never read anything so badly written that got published. Made Twilight look like War and Peace. Um, uh, the Huffington Post said, as a reading experience, Fifty Shades is a sad joke, puny of plot. Um, and uh, Maureen Dowd of the New York Times said, like Bronte, devoid of talent, dull and poorly written. <laughs> Um, but they were very, very successful. And But the books had been out for a couple of years by the time they were negotiating the rights to the movie. So now the power is with the writer because you can say you can be as mean as you want, but it's very, very popular, right? Con- yeah. Continually so as well. It wasn't it wasn't tricking anyone. It was exactly, hey, do you like poorly written softcore porn? And people were like, yes, I do. We're like, well, here you go. This is the zenith of it. <laughs> and so there was a bidding war between Warner, Sony, Paramount, and Universal, and, and Marky Mark as well, his production company, uh, Mark Wahlberg's company. Right. Um, so we could have, I don't know whether he was going to cast himself in it, um, but we missed that chance, unfortunately. Um, and so Universal got the rights with Focus Features, and they paid $5 million up front, um, which is a lot. But also, E.L. James had a lot of control as well about casting and, and the director and, and writing, all that sort of stuff. So funnily enough, she... Uh, they picked a screenwriter who'd been writing a lot already. They wrote, um, she wrote Saving Mrs. Uh, Mrs. Banks, uh, Mr. Yeah. Banks, um, and things like that. But for the second and third film, she hired her husband to write it, who, to be fair, is a TV writer, but not of the sort of same scale as the other ones. But I guess if people aren't going for the plot, it doesn't matter so much. No. Um, but I, I then wanted to look up, because I thought I was going to be mean about the books and the films. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to see how they performed financially. And so I compared the first three Matrix films mm. and the and the three Fifty Shades films. And the first three Matrix films cost $365 million to make, whereas the Fifty Shades films only cost 150 So it's well under half the budget price. But the box office of the Matrix was $1.6 and Fifty Shades was $1.3. So Fifty Shades did nearly as well as the first three Matrix films on wow. half the cost. So it's, a, it's very easy to be sniffy and, and good fun. Um, but at the same time, it, people wanted to see it. And so when you have those kind of, when you have that power, you can, uh, yeah, you can do really well. But it, the interesting thing about it is that these already existed. These books were already po- popular. Both cases were fairly unknown writers who then did well and then the studios came calling. But when it's an established writer or a popular story, it can happen the other way around. And so with the social network... This is kind of trippy. The social network is based on the movie, the Aaron Sorkin's movie, is officially based on a book that wasn't written while the, when the screenplay was being written. They were both being co-written at the same time. Oh, wow. 
because the they they knew uh, uh, Ben um, Mositz, I can't remember his surname. He was writing a book called The Accidental Accidental Billionaires, and had already got a big book deal. It was already an established. You know, everyone knew that it was a really interesting story. So the studio said, "Well, while you're writing this, we're going to get Aaron Sorkin to write the adaptation." And then, Adam, and then Aaron Sorkin changed a load of things, moved things around. He was the one that sort of gave it the backbone of the court case across the whole thing and the flashbacks, and that's not in the original book. So they, they're similar, and officially the, the author would have got some money from it, but you could also say they both adapted the same true story. Um, but the, the final example I wanted to give was that um, what do you think it costs up front to mm. adapt a Stephen King book? Oh. To adapt to Stephen King, that will be lots because of, oh, yeah. Uh, mm, I'm going to say, up front, Stephen King wants 50 million. <laughs> well, I can tell you that he, he got paid $5,000 for the Shawshank Redemption. What? Up front. No, so, and, and, and so maybe, um, maybe more on the back end. I'm sure that film has been very successful. But the, his official going rate right now is one dollar. What? Because he so wants things to happen. Mm, yeah, he wants power over them. So basically he says, uh, I want a dollar and I want approvals over the screenwriter, director and principal cast. Oh, he also will get a load of the profits. So apparently he got eight figures for the recent adaptation of It. So he does, he's smart, basically. That he can afford smart, to, isn't it? yeah, he can afford to give up some of the money up front, but he's never going to have a movie made that he by people he doesn't care about. Like, oh, I mm-hmm. hated that director. And then also he's going to get a nice chunk of change. And also he does something really cool. So he has a scheme called Dollar Babies, where if you're a film student and you want to make a short film based on any of his not already existed, you know, unproduced or unsold stories, mm. you can do it for a dollar. So any film student can make a film that's been adapted from a Stephen King story for just one dollar up front. That's very cool. It is super cool, isn't it? So, um, yeah, so I guess it, it all depends on the on the power dynamics and whether you trust the industry. Stephen King obviously has good enough lawyers to say, well, when I get a percentage of profits, I get a percentage of profits. Mm. Whereas E.L. James or the author of um, Gone Girl got money up front because they're like, well, I'm hot right now. It's selling well. You know, pay me. You know what I mean? You want my, my best-selling book. Only one person can have it. I want money up front and I want some power. So... So what, so I think what you need to do if you want to improve your bargaining position for Voices in My Head is you're going to need to go and get really famous. Right. Um, and you're going to need to get your book selling really well. I mean, like softcore porn level goods. Right. Um, so if you do that, then we can negotiate a little bit. Sure. Um, but until then, I'm still only going to go. I'm going to offer you a Stephen King ch- uh, figure um, up front, Damn. which is a dollar. Oh, geez. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I'm sorry it's ending on such a disappointing note. No, 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 no. This is disappointing from your perspective. From mine, it's wonderful. I've got control of this new universe for a dollar up front, and I, and I feel very good about myself as a producer. So I, I think you're very much focusing on the wrong aspect of this. Please help me crowdfund for my mortgage. Um, if you love us as much as we love us, then please give us a follow in your podcast app. Um, and while you're at it, if you're there now, if you wouldn't mind giving us a lovely review and a five-star rating, if you've got time, that would be wonderful. If you have a lovely question, like the wonderful Paul McCudden and Joe and Charlie and Alex Hall, then do drop us a line at showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. That's showmethemoneypod at gmail.com. And I will um, endeavour to insult you (laughs) with a stupid voice next time. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much. (laughs) 